Hello, friends, and welcome to part two of the Olympia series. I want to thank everyone who has listened, subscribed, and left reviews. I finally got brave enough to look at my reviews on iTunes, and you guys are so nice. I was amazed at how many of you actually took time out of your day to write about how much you're enjoying the History Cash podcast. My goodness, you set my heart all aflutter. It's just more proof that my listeners are the number one human beings of all time. Okay, I'll stop gushing for now and get to the history. But seriously, you guys are awesome. It's been a couple weeks since we've left off, so I'll give you all a recap of what we've gone over so far. Last time, I talked about how the primary sources we have on Olympias are ancient, and that most were writing centuries after Olympias had lived. By the time these writers like Plutarch, Satyrus, and Justin were writing about Olympias, her life and that of her son Alexander the Great were the stuff of legends. These sources all differ in many ways, even about the ways the players of this story died, so it's extremely doubtful that any of the sources we have are totally accurate. This history is like a 2400-year-old game of telephone and the ancient writers were writing from their own very biased, very ethnocentric perspectives. This meant that they were not fans of women in power, and Olympias had been the most powerful woman in Greek history. Her personality and actions were recast in these narratives from what she actually did and who she actually was in order for these writers to fit her into the box of what they thought she should have been. Since she was not what they thought she should have been, and we know that from the fact that she even existed as a powerful force when she did, she has been turned over time into a vindictive, jealous, irrational woman who couldn't handle the power she had. In reality, the cunning, the intelligence, the confidence, and the charisma she had allowed her to become a huge player in politics, religion, and the forging of the largest empire the world had seen at the time. You don't accomplish that in a world that doesn't want you to accomplish those things if you're irrational and incapable. She has been blamed for millennia for destroying the world her husband, Philip II, had built, and even more modern narratives continue to spur on this outdated, contradictory notion. And it's been easy to blame her, because the ancient sources sure do, and they are unfortunately the best glimpse we have into her world. The point of this series is to bring you the real Olympias, as much as is possible anymore. The true story in all its complete accuracy is sadly lost to time. And that's because the sources we have are biased, much younger than she was, and her world has been so overlaid with layer upon layer of myth and legend that seeing the truth beneath is like trying to see the answers laying in the mud at the bottom of a murky lake. Only Olympias knew the real Olympias. But by utilizing these ancient sources, seeing where they contradict one another, using modern, more enlightened sources like Elizabeth Carney's book that I keep plugging even though she has no idea I exist, and by examining the archaeological evidence, we can begin to shine a light to the bottom of that lake. 
And it's still not a clear picture, but it's one that gives us a sliver of a real glimpse into who this woman was and what this world that has lived so long in legend felt like for the people living inside of it. Olympias did do some terrible things, things that would shake us to the core today, and we will get to some of them in this episode. Her contemporary male counterparts were also doing terrible things, some far worse, but their actions were designated as normal, because the ancient writers described their motives as ones of glory, terrible deeds done for the greater good. Olympias's motives were described as coming from a place of weakness, of jealousy. The only reason her actions would have been shocking to an audience that was used to stories of political violence would have been because they had been done by a woman. Olympias was surviving in a world where survival was elusive. Everyone in the story was. There's no justification good enough in our modern minds for the crimes that these ancient people would commit against one another. If our leaders of today committed the same acts of violence, we would be horrified. Because it is horrifying. Not to say that horrifying things aren't happening. But you'll see what I mean. This episode is going to get bloody. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. To recap, if you remember, Olympias was born around 373 BCE in Melosia, a territory adjacent to Macedonia. Its mountainous landscape and rugged wilderness made it difficult to traverse, and along with Macedonia, the Greeks of the more southern regions, like Athens, generally considered the people of the north to be uncivilized and barbarous. When Olympias was around 18 years old, give or take, she became the fourth wife of Philip II, the man who would, within the 23 years of his reign, take the violent backwater that had been Macedonia and forge it into the powerhouse of Greece, effectively conquering the rest of what we now call Greece, as well as taking back territories that had been lost to the fierce Illyrian tribes to the north. Olympias had two children with Philip, their daughter Cleopatra, and their son Alexander, who we all know as Alexander the Great. You already know he would go on to forge the largest empire the world had seen at the time, even greater than the Persian Empire that stretched its way across three continents and had been the world's first superpower, effectively conquering everything it touched for two centuries before Olympias was born. Well, almost everything. This is Sparta! There is no doubt that Olympias helped pave the way for Alexander's success. She would inculcate in him the heroic lineage of her dynasty, that of the Eosids, those Greeks who claimed descendants from Achilles himself and from the royal house of Troy made famous by Homer's Iliad. She would ensure his success at court and she herself would rise above Philip's six other wives to become the most powerful woman in Greece. 
We left the last episode at a time of great uncertainty for the royal house of Macedonia. Philip had conquered everything he could conquer in ancient Greece, and he wanted more. He knew the expanse of the Persian Empire stretched across the world he knew, and he knew it was weakening. For over 200 years, it had been an unstoppable force, but internally, it had begun to crumble, tearing at the seams. Rebellions, political strife, and civil war were chipping away at its foundations, undoing what its founder Cyrus the Great had done and what his descendants had expanded upon. Philip knew he had the best army in the world, and if he wanted to conquer that world, the time was now. He allied himself with a man named Attalus by marrying the man's niece, a young woman named Cleopatra. The marriage was a business deal, cementing the armies of these two men at a time when Philip needed more soldiers and at a time when Attalus wanted more power. This man Attalus would do two stupid things that we know of. First, he would have one of Philip II's former lovers, a man named Pausanias, brutally sexually assaulted at a drunken feast. When Pausanias asked Philip to deal with Attalus, he would refuse. Attalus was an important ally to Philip, and he needed him for his upcoming invasion of Asia. So he let Attalus get away with the crime, and to appease Pausanias, he made him a somatophylax, a member of the king's guard, and hoped the situation would just resolve itself. It wouldn't. Next, Attalus publicly insulted Alexander at a symposium, or a feast, celebrating the marriage of Philip to Cleopatra. He would, on this famous ill-fated night, call Alexander unfit to succeed Philip on the throne and toast to the future children Philip and Cleopatra would have, suggesting they would be the real, legitimate heirs to Philip's empire. Philip would, according to two out of three surviving accounts we have of this night, attack his own son after Alexander fired back and threw his wine cup at Italus. Philip would fall drunk to the floor, and Alexander would leave Macedonia, and he would take Olympias with him. Philip, ready to invade Asia, would be left without his heir, without the most powerful woman in Greece, and to make everything worse, Cleopatra would soon become pregnant with his child. It's not hard to imagine the internal conflict Philip must have felt the day after that symposium. It had all happened in front of probably most of the Macedonian male nobles who were there to celebrate the wedding. His father-in-law had insulted his son, and his son had insulted him after he had embarrassingly fallen to the floor, too drunk to make it more than a few paces. Macedonian symposiums were always drunken affairs, often escalating into violence. But they were a place where important decisions were often made, and the fact Philip attacked his own son at one, supposedly, is telling. Only a few months before his marriage to Cleopatra, Philip had won a huge victory at the Battle of Chaeronea, when he defeated a coalition of Greek city-states led by Athens and Thebes, effectively cementing his Macedonian control over Greece. Alexander had joined his father in this battle, leading the companion cavalry himself, an elite force of mounted soldiers that were a decisive part of Philip's battle plan. 
The victory was a huge win for Philip, so much so that to commemorate it, he had erected a monument called the Philippium. It was constructed in the same manner as a religious temple to the gods. Within this temple, Philip had statues constructed of gold and ivory, materials usually only designated for the images of gods. These statues were of his mother, his father, himself, Alexander, and Olympias. None of his other wives or children were depicted, only Olympias and Alexander. The significance of the divine nature of these statues has been debated, but it suggests that Philip was deifying, at least to some extent, himself and his immediate family. It also suggests that the official royal family consisted of himself, Olympias, and their son. Not their daughter, though. Sorry, Cleopatra. That was a big deal, and it cemented not only Olympias' position as his most important wife and his only divine one, but clearly showed that he had designated Alexander as his heir. After the decisive battle at Chaeronea, Philip even sent Alexander to go negotiate with the Athenians along with Antipater, one of his trusted generals. He was teaching his son diplomacy as well as giving him battlefield experience. So why would Philip attack Alexander at this dinner party? The real answer is hard to know. Alexander was 20 years old at the time of the symposium. It was not unheard of for kings to take thrones around that age. And even earlier, Elizabeth Carney describes the uneasy relationship and even mistrust kings could have with their heirs perfectly when she writes in her book, Olympias, mother of Alexander the Great, quote, a fact of life in monarchy exacerbated this distrust. A son who reached or neared adult years was, in effect, waiting for his father to die, and royal fathers would always feel the breath of their heir just behind them." Unquote. Perhaps Philip was reasserting his authority over his son at this disaster of a symposium. Alexander had insulted Philip's new father-slash-uncle-in-law, Granted, Italus had insulted him first and in a much deeper way, but Philip had to be seen as keeping his son's behavior in check. This young, fierce, overconfident son of Olympias descended from Achilles and the royal house of Troy. This youth educated by Aristotle and hungry for power, already proven as an excellent leader in battle and closer to his mother than his father. And he was close to his mother. While Philip was out on campaigns away from his children, Olympias was with her children, advocating for her son's succession. This probably wasn't just the result of a mother's love, but the assertion of her own power and status as well. Her son's success would mean her success. Philip had seven wives, and only one of them would get to one day be the mother of a king. And we know the two were close because when Alexander left Macedonia, he took Olympias with him, or at least arranged for her to go back to Melosia, where she was from, where her brother was now sitting on the throne her father had once held. Her brother's name was also Alexander, which is terribly inconvenient, and I'm going to call him Uncle Alex throughout this episode like I did in the last one because so many of these players had the same names and it was confusing for me so I'm gonna try and make it as unconfusing as possible for you. Now, Alexander was somewhere in the Illyrian territories, and Olympias was back in Molossia. 
This was not the way to start a war campaign, and Philip needed to act quickly now. Philip had probably even intended for Alexander to join him on his campaign to Asia. If Philip couldn't keep his own house in order, how were the rest of the Macedonians and city-states of Greece to trust he could keep the country in order, let alone successfully take down the world's largest empire? And if Philip were to die on this campaign without his heir ready to succeed the throne after him, his legacy would be nothing. He would be just another king, skewered somewhere on a foreign battlefield, soon forgotten by the crowd of nobles hungrily waiting to grab at their own chance to take the throne. Cleopatra, his newest wife, was pregnant with his child, but he had no way of knowing if it would be a son, and even if it was, it would be nearly two more decades before it could wield any power. In the cutthroat court of Macedonia, two decades was too long. Philip did have another son, if you remember, Aridaeus, his eldest. But Aridaeus, though he was older than Alexander, had been designated as unfit to rule on account of a mental handicap. We don't know exactly what this handicap was, but we know it was seen at the time to be significant enough to keep Aridaeus from the throne. Alexander was irritatingly ready to take his father's seat, but Philip could not afford to destabilize the political situation in Macedonia by allowing anyone to believe he didn't intend for his son to be his heir. The only option Philip had was to make amends, and not just with Alexander, but Olympias, too. You'll find a lot of sources that say Philip divorced Olympias, but there is actually no real evidence that that was the case. In fact, we'll see in just a bit why it was probably unlikely. The departure of Alexander and Olympias forced Philip to reaffirm Alexander as his heir. If their intention was to corner Philip into publicly declaring Alexander as his heir, then it was a cunning move, and we can't be positive but it would not be unwise to assume that Olympias, a woman well-versed in calculating the power dynamics of a royal court, could have meant for things to play out exactly this way. It could also have been a coincidence, this young fired-up Alexander taking himself and his mother from the court of Philip to plan his next move, a youthful outburst that somehow just worked out in their favor. But it's hard not to imagine Olympias, who had worked her way to the top of a polygamous court, didn't foresee that Philip would have to fold on this one. It would reaffirm her son's position as heir to the throne and her status as the most powerful woman at court. It would have been a smart move. The writer Justin claims that while she was at her brother's court in her homeland in Melosia, Olympias urged him to make war on Philip because Philip had failed to defend his son at the symposium. It's hard to say if this is true. It might just be an ancient writer pushing to showcase Olympias as irrational and vindictive. I can't say this didn't happen because I wasn't there, but neither was Justin, who wrote about it over 500 years after it all happened. I find it difficult to believe that Olympias would have been so foolish as to really believe that her brother, king of a rugged, small kingdom next to Macedonia could have defeated the massive and efficient army of Philip II that had swept over all of Greece in the last two decades and solidified that power on the battlefield at Chaeronea just months before. She knew what power her husband wielded, and going up against him with a smaller, less efficient force 
would not only have been suicide, but the end of her royal house. And Olympias's first concern throughout her life seems to have been the preservation and status of her family, the Eosids. Throwing it all away on a doomed rebellion because of a slight at a dinner party just doesn't fit. It just smells like fake news to me. And like I said, Philip probably reconciled not just with Alexander, but Olympias too, at least publicly. But their trust in one another had been shaken. Justin wrote that Olympias was angry because she was jealous her husband had married another woman. As I explained in the last episode, this would not have made sense. Olympias had already seen Philip marry two other women after her, both without incident, and he had married three more before he even looked her way. She was on top, the only wife with a healthy heir old enough to succeed his father. Even if Cleopatra gave birth to a male heir, he couldn't have ruled for decades. This new bride was no threat to Olympias. If she was angry, and she may well have been, it would have been because Philip had refused to defend their son and his position as the designated heir. Calling her jealous of a polygamous man whose marriage to her had been a business contract brokered between two men with armies was just another way to make her look petty, and another way to make women seem unfit to hold power. Though I believe the ancient sources had her anger focused in the wrong place, it's not unlikely that Philip, Olympias, and Alexander were all unhappy at this point in the story, all hurt, and all planning their next move. The tragedy of this very real Greek tragedy was just beginning. I can imagine the colossal anticipation of everyone at waiting to know the sex of the baby Cleopatra would have with Philip. And she did give birth successfully to her first child. And when the newborn babe was pulled crying from its mother, they saw that it was... <coughs> a girl. They named her Europa. You can imagine the relief Alexander must have felt. Again, even if this baby had been a healthy boy that survived childhood, it would have been years before it could have eclipsed Alexander. But given his itchiness at the insults of Italis and the brashness of what he was about to do next, we know he was definitely concerned with being seen as first in line. Although Philip publicly made amends with Olympias and her son, their relationships to one another were strained privately. Philip continued on with his alliance with Attalus, the man who had questioned Alexander's legitimacy, and it seems that neither Olympias nor Alexander trusted Philip any longer. We can see that in what happens next. Plutarch is the only source we have on this, but his account does merit some attention because if it's true, then we can assume the holy royal family that had just been immortalized in gold and ivory at Philippium was not as stable as they would have wanted everyone to believe. A man named Pixodorus was a Persian satrap or regional governor of Caria, a region on the coast of Asia Minor, and he had a daughter that was of marriable age. 
Like nearly any person with some sort of authority at the time, he was eager to ally himself with Philip. Philip was no doubt going to make his way into Persia eventually, and if Pixodorus could ally himself with the king in charge of the superior army, he would be much more likely to keep his position. So Pixodorus offered his daughter to Philip's eldest son, Aridaeus, which would formally cement an alliance. Philip liked this because he would gain another ally as well as have one less territory in Asia Minor to contend with on the battlefield. Philip had the deadliest army in the world at the time, but he was always eager to gain new alliances through peaceful negotiation and marriages. Those types of alliances were usually much less strained. When Alexander found out about the marriage between his brother and the satrap's daughter, he immediately went on the defensive. He was worried this meant Philip was planning on leaving the throne to Aridaeus. There is no evidence that this was the case. Pixodorus was not the most powerful ally Philip would have, and it's possible Philip would have wanted Alexander, the next in line, to marry someone of a more influential and important line. It's also possible Philip was angry with Alexander for making a scene at the symposium, exiling himself and his mother, and forcing Philip to publicly reconcile before what was shaping up to be the biggest campaign of his life. Perhaps offering Pixodorus' daughter to Aridaeus instead was a way for Philip to reprimand his son. We can't be sure. Alexander sent a message to Pixodorus behind Philip's back, offering himself in marriage to his daughter in lieu of his elder brother. Pixodorus was all for this. Yes, yes, yes. He would have known Alexander was Philip's heir, and why give your daughter to a man who could only ever hope to be a prince when you could give her to one who would be a king? When Philip found out about all this, he was absolutely furious. The marriage deal was cancelled, costing Philip an ally at a critical time. Plutarch says Philip was so angry he even exiled Alexander's companions, who Plutarch claims conspired in this whole idea with him. He also blames Olympias for it, which should be no surprise to you by now, because he has blamed her for everything else so far, even incidents that occurred when she wasn't present. Plutarch wrote in a way that extolled Alexander, so he was eager to blame this one on Alexander's friends and mother, because how could it be the fault of the glorious Alexander? That's assuming any of this actually happened. My heart drops when I consider how much of this history is completely unverifiable. We just have to trust the words of xenophobic and very sexist historians that were writing years, even centuries after all this happened, using sources for their writings that probably weren't really any better than the ones we have today. And my heart drops even more when I see modern websites and blogs spouting the same unconfirmed narratives. You'll find a lot of sources that say Philip divorced Olympias right before his last marriage so he could marry Cleopatra. We know that's wrong, because he practiced polygamy, so the sources are apparently just forgetting he was married to seven other women at the same time. I also see sources saying he divorced Olympias because she slept with Zeus. And that he denounced Alexander as his heir because of it. 
Well, we know this is wrong too. He had depicted the three of them together in a temple, believing he was immortalizing them all indefinitely. He took his son with him to the battlefield and gave him diplomatic responsibilities, and he publicly reconciled with Alexander and Olympias. Why would he have asked his son to return from a self-imposed exile after he threw a temper tantrum if he didn't believe Alexander was really his son? And even after Alexander went behind his back to Pixodorus and cost him a valuable ally, he still treated him as his son. But damage had been done, and Philip needed the public to believe that his family was stable. So he did what he usually did when he needed to cement or re-cement a relationship. He planned a wedding. Not for himself this time, or for either of his sons, but for the daughter he had with Olympias. Since her name was Cleopatra too, which is also the name of his newest wife, I'll do again what I did in the last episode and call her Daughter Cleo for clarity's sake. So when I say Cleopatra, I'm talking about Philip's seventh wife. Daughter Cleo is the daughter of Philip and Olympias, and the only full sister of Alexander the Great. Don't feel bad if you're confused. I had to literally make a chart to keep track of everyone. Philip was giving his daughter in marriage to the brother of Olympias, Uncle Alex. This is the second time in this series we've seen an uncle marry his niece. It's gross, but it's ancient Macedonia. Philip must have held Uncle Alex in high regard. If you remember from the last episode, Uncle Alex had come to Philip's court as a youth, where, according to Justin, they began a sexual relationship. This was super common for the time, and men who engaged in a sexual relationship with the king expected favors in return. And in return, Philip ousted Olympias's uncle from the throne and gave it to Uncle Alex. That would have made Olympias happy, as it was her brother on the throne, and it brought honor to the Eosids, which could only add to the status she already held as the mother of Philip's heir. By marrying his daughter to Uncle Alex and not to a foreign satrap or ruler, Philip was re-solidifying his relationship to the Eosids, Olympias's dynasty. Daughters were political currency, and daughter Cleo was the sister of the man who would one day become king. She was Philip's most valuable asset for a diplomatic marriage, and he was giving her to a king who was already his ally. Why would Philip do that? He was an intelligent man, and he knew how to play politics better than any other king at the time, and he had to have known what his daughter was worth. Well, perhaps it wasn't all his idea. The only thing special about the man daughter Cleo was about to marry was the fact that he was the brother of Olympias. Either she urged Philip to agree to this marriage as a way to re-strengthen her family ties and her status, or it's just a huge coincidence and a blatant, hugely missed opportunity from Philip to use his most valuable daughter to forge a strong alliance at a most critical time for the kingdom. We don't know if Olympias had anything to do with this idea, but it would have been a way for Philip to reaffirm the power of her family, which could only have been good news for her. This was clearly a way for Philip to reconcile with Olympias and his son as the marriage would only bring them honor and restore their appearance as a happy family. 
to give up such a valuable daughter, he must have really wanted this reconciliation. It's almost hard to imagine she didn't have something to do with it. It would have been an intelligent play on her part, and her intelligent plays aren't what our ancient sources like to write about, so we can only speculate. But she probably felt pretty good about it either way, especially after forcing Philip into a public reconciliation and the reaffirmation of her son as his heir. So we can assume that in this case, she got exactly what she wanted. <laughs> And this wedding was going to be a big party. Philip turned the marriage of his daughter into an international affair, complete with performances and fantastic processions. He would even march in between his son, Alexander, and Uncle Alex, publicly demonstrating the strength of their bonds. Was any of this Olympias's idea? We don't know, but we can't put it past her. But at this most festive, expensive, lavish, and glorious of celebrations, the world was going to fall apart. I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to the History Cash podcast. There are over 700,000 podcasts to choose from now, and the fact that you chose to listen to mine today is astonishingly awesome. So I genuinely want to thank you for being here. I do this podcast because I want to make history both exciting and accessible to everyone. That's why I do this show for free. But the costs are accumulating. If you can, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. Patrons help me pay for things like books, hosting fees, and music licenses that add up way faster than you'd think. All patrons get free stickers, access to the members-only feed, and the benefits only increase with each tier. So if you love history and have a dollar a month to help out this nerd who wants to bring history to life again, check out Patreon. And you can subscribe to the show for free wherever you listen. That's the best way for this show to get more attention. That and word of mouth, so tell your friends they need to know more about Olympias or robots, or doomed Antarctic expeditions, or any of the other weird stuff I've covered. And if not, I still love you. Okay, back to the show. The ancient Greeks loved to celebrate and the wedding of a king's daughter would have been an excellent reason to party. Philip made sure the union of his daughter with the brother of Olympias was an international celebration that was meant to last for days. The streets would have been crowded with citizens and slaves, straining to peer over one another in hopes of getting a glimpse at the bride, the groom, and maybe even their king. Music would have been everywhere. Professional musicians hired for the celebrations would have run practiced fingers over their harps and lyres crafted from alabaster and decorated with the heads of wild animals. The sistrum, an ancient rattle with origins in Egypt, 
would have kept rhythm as the people danced, and the singers crooned out songs of love, devotion, and blessings for the royal couple. Philip arranged for musical competitions to take place. The best, most revered musicians in the Greek world would have battled for the olive wreath. Novices, desperate to prove themselves, would have prayed to Apollo the night before, maybe even offered a sacrifice to entice the god of music to favor them in the competition. The smell of cooking food would have carried through the streets on the wind, and into the house of Olympias, where her daughter was being bathed, purified for the coming ceremony. Everyone feasted, and Philip spared no expense. Meat, fruit, fresh vegetables, and cooked grains would have been set in layers so thick you wouldn't have even been able to see the tables. Sacrifices were made to the gods, animals, wines, and votives offered to them in the hope that they would bless the newlyweds with children and long lives. The crackling of burning meat on the altars would have cooked the sacrifices that were then passed to the crowd, as not a bite of such a powerful offering could be wasted. Wine would have flowed into every glass, and when the people began to feel the effects of the wine, pressed from the grapes that had ripened in the sun and cool breezes of the mountains of Macedonia, they would have believed their drunkenness was Dionysus himself taking over their bodies, possessing them, spurring them into fits of wild dancing. Philip had just solidified his control of Greece, and the wedding was an opportunity for him to show his hospitality to the world, and so he invited his friends and allies from all over the Greek world to attend, urging them to bring their friends and for their friends to send messages throughout the known world, far beyond even the Aegean, and invite the friends of their friends. And everyone came, and the most prominent nobles offered him crowns made of solid gold. The most prominent cities in Greece gave him crowns of gold too, everyone eager to show their king homage, hoping to gain his favor and good graces in return. At dusk, when everyone was full from the feasting, they crowded inside the theater, enjoying performances from the best entertainers in the known world. The dancing and drinking and music would carry on well into the night, until the wine finally took even the hardiest of revelers. Dionysus left them, and they succumbed to a hard sleep. The morning brought new celebrations, new feasts and sacrifices, and the king himself marched in the wedding procession. Twelve statues of twelve gods were carried before him, crafted using the precious elements of gold and ivory and shaped by the most skilled hands in all of Greece. A thirteenth statue was paraded with the others, this one in the persona of Philip himself, enthroned in the procession with the other gods, the king perhaps suggesting his own divinity. The groom, the king of Melosia, walked along one side of Philip. His son Alexander, heir to the throne of Macedonia, walked on the other. Philip was surrounded by the Somatophylax, the soldiers of the king's guard, the most highly ranked nobles and generals Philip trusted with his life. They were arrayed in glorious armor, glittering in the sun, crafted from the finest linen and bronze. 
One of the guards, a handsome but distracted man, was sweating more than the others. His sweat dripping into his eyes, stinging as it mixed with the dust kicked up by so many moving feet and hooves. His eyes were wide and he was glancing at the horses tied by the city gates, pawing the ground and snorting their protest, antsy at the noises of the growing crowd. <laughs> the procession arrived at the theater. Philip, dressed in a white cloak so fine it would have felt foreign to the well-worked hands of most Macedonians. His one eye shone brightly, the scar on his face prominent in the sunlight where he had lost the other in battle. He limped into the spotlight, another consequence of too much war, but his posture was straight and proud. Philip felt like the king of kings that day. The people, leaders, and city representatives had showed him their deference, and it made him feel like a god. Now, in front of the crowd, he ordered his bodyguard to stand back, indicating to everyone that he needed no protection. He was Philip, and this was his stage. He arrived to cheers, and a happy crowd, bellies and cups full of his hospitality. But there was one man who did not feel like celebrating. Pausanias, the former lover of Philip's, who had been disgraced by Italus, Philip's father-in-law, took his place among the rest of the king's guard. He had not forgotten the shame he felt when Italus had him sexually assaulted, and he had not forgotten his anger at Philip, who had allowed Italus to get away with the crime. His promotion to the king's guard had been an effort to appease Pausanias, and he took the position, but he had not forgiven his king. He had thought for a long time about what he was going to do next. The horses at the gates were his, and if he was going to do what he had planned to do, the time was now. Philip, having dismissed his guard at a distance, was alone for the first time in the theater. Pausanias, sweat pooling in his armor, heart pumping, pulled out the dagger he had concealed beneath his cloak. It had been forged in a Celtic fire by a Celtic smith, its iron running broad by the hilt and ending in a deadly pinprick of a point, sharp enough to kill even a king. Pausanias lunged. He lunged in front of the crowd, in front of the groom, in front of Alexander, and the sea of nobles and their retinues. And his strike was perfect and deadly. He plunged the dagger into the ribs of Philip. A man who was battle-worn, a man who had lost an eye to war and walked with a limp from the many cuts and blows he had suffered on the battlefield. A man who knew a deadly wound when he saw one. We don't know if Philip II saw the face of his killer before he fell to the floor of the theater and bled to death in front of his son. We don't know if he mumbled out any last words with the last gulp of Macedonian air he would ever breathe in. 
but we can guess he knew he was about to die. The one eye he had left, closing for the last time. There, on the ground of a crowded theater, on his daughter's wedding day, the crumpled body of Philip II breathed its last. The crowd would have been in shock, not at all expecting that on this most festive, most ebullient of days, they would see their king's mortality proved right before them. Pausanias, realizing the weight of what he had just done, fled. He ran as fast as he could toward the horses he had planted at the gate. The king's guard, the rest of the Somatophylax, shook themselves from their surprise, some of them rushing to the fallen body of their king, and three of them giving chase, running after Pausanias, a man who had just seconds before been their comrade. Pausanias almost escaped. He was ahead of the other guards when his sandal became caught and he fell, giving the others just enough time to catch up to him. Without question, without hesitation, without a word, the guards drew their swords and ran him through, killing him instantly. The moment he died, his escape route, his conspirators, if he had any, his plans, whatever his justifications, were all lost to history. Back in the theater, the rest of the king's guard would have known there was no saving Philip. The king was dead. Philip II had reigned for 23 years. That's an impressively long time for a Macedonian king. He had come to the throne unexpectedly and transformed the violent backwater of Macedonia into the most powerful player in Greece. No one had expected him to die. There was no guarantee that Alexander would become king after his father's death. It must have been an incredibly stressful and uncertain moment, not just for Alexander, but for Olympias. If her son was not placed on the throne, her influence, her power would all be but extinguished. Like I've said before, her success was dependent on his. Immediately, Olympias and Alexander were both suspected as having been involved in the assassination of Philip. Philip was a member of the Argid dynasty, and the Argids had a long history of regicide. When an Argid was killed, it was usually at the hand of another Argid. On top of that, although Philip had made a very public effort to show Macedonia that he had reconciled with Olympias and Alexander, people remembered that not long ago, both of them had left Macedonia in self-imposed exile. And on top of that, Pausanias, the man who had run his blade through Philip, shared two enemies with Olympias and Alexander. These enemies were Attalus, the man who had insulted Alexander, and Cleopatra, Philip's youngest wife, that was to bear Philip a full Macedonian heir to take the throne from the half-Macedonian Alexander. We cannot deny that it didn't look good for Olympias and Alexander. 
both would acquire much power if Alexander became king. As the wife of a king, Olympias had some influence, but as the mother of a king, her power would increase to a much greater degree. If they had conspired with Pausanias, they could have used the man's stewing resentment of Philip for their own ends. And Philip had given both of them reason to doubt him. His death could have possibly been a solution to any uncertainty for their futures. Both Olympias and Alexander would prove in not too long a time that they were both very capable of political violence when it came to securing their positions. So murder might not have been an issue either one of them would have lost much sleep over. I'm going to be honest with you, because this podcast is a safe place. Before I did the research for this episode, I was convinced that Olympias and perhaps Alexander, but mostly Olympias, were definitely involved in the murder of Philip. It's part of why I thought she was intriguing, and it does look suspicious, but now I don't think she did it. I don't think either of them did it, and I'll explain why. First, Philip's death did not guarantee the ascent of Alexander to the throne, and if the loyal nobles of Macedonia, who Philip had greatly enriched, were to discover he and his mother had been involved in the assassination in any way, Alexander would definitely not have inherited the throne. Their involvement in the assassination would have jeopardized everything they wanted. Second, if they had wanted Philip dead, there were a number of more intelligent, efficient, and less public ways to kill him. Poison, assassination on the battlefield, and he was about to go to war, and both Alexander and Olympias probably had frequent, private contact with him. Even an, air quotes, hunting accident would have been better. Third, the public assassination would have been a huge embarrassment. For one, it humiliated Olympias' daughter and her brother on their wedding day. If Olympias cared about anything, it was the honor of her family and her dynasty. If she wanted to kill Philip, she would have chosen a situation that left her family name out of it. Fourth, the death of Philip meant great instability for Macedonia. At the news of Philip's death, northern tribes began to revolt almost immediately. Everyone wanted to take advantage of the weakened kingdom. The rest of Greece believed the Macedonians were barbarians and greatly resented Philip's authority. When it was discovered he had been assassinated, this stereotype was reinforced for many Greeks outside of the northern territories. If the king was dead, it meant that Macedonia was weak and once again ripe for the picking. And lastly, there were a lot of people who did want Philip dead. The Persians had to have known he was coming for them and the Athenians and the Thebans had revolted and suffered a huge defeat from Philip not long before his death. And the Illyrians were constantly warring with Macedonia and had been long before Philip had become king. It was the Illyrians that had killed his brother, the last king. And we can't leave out the possibility that Pausanias did act alone. He had suffered a huge trauma at the hands of Attalus and Philip had not defended him. The murder may have just been the actions of a man who felt the need for vengeance. Elizabeth Carney wrote of this in her book, quote, Though mother and son undeniably benefited from Philip's death, 
they were hardly the ones to do so. Moreover, some of the other beneficiaries of Philip's demise risked virtually nothing if their participation in or support of Pausanias's plot were to be revealed. The Athenians and Persians would not have been embarrassed if they had participated and their participation had been exposed. Philip's death did delay the invasion of the Persian Empire for two years. Members of the Persian elite had spent time at Philip's court and could easily have found agents to collaborate with Pausanias. Indeed, if, as the evidence suggests, Pausanias had hoped to survive his regicide, he must have had reason to expect that some power not formally allied with Philip would take him in. That power would most likely have been the Persian king." Unquote. While it's easy to see why people suspected Olympias and Alexander in Philip's death, I know I did, and we can't say for certain they had nothing to do with it. There is just as much, if not more, evidence suggesting they didn't. It would have been a very unclever way to dispose of their king. If he had been younger, or if Alexander did not have the support of the Macedonian army, or the support of most Macedonian nobles, it's possible the throne would have been usurped, or that Macedonia would have been partitioned. But Alexander, the spirited 20-year-old, did inherit the throne. That must have been a sweet day for Olympias. The last 20 years of her life had been spent vying for her son's right to the throne, and competing with six other women for status. Although she probably did love her son, and very much, she hadn't just been vying for him, but herself as well. She had calculated, inculcated, and pushed for a spot as close to the throne of Greece as a woman could get. And she had done it. I like to think of her sitting outside in a soft Macedonian breeze, drinking wine while one of her snakes coiled its way around her arm, and feeling the fullness of that moment. But relief would not last long. Immediately, two things happened. One, Alexander rode north and crushed the rebellions, even though his generals were urging him to find a more diplomatic solution. He was young, and he needed to assert his authority over a Greece that was fully ready to rebel. And two, both he and Olympias had a lot of red tape to cut through. And by red tape, I mean people. People who were direct or even slightly possible competitors to the throne. When a new Macedonian king took the throne, it was usually followed by the murder of those who could one day usurp him. Alexander would justify these deaths, saying those he killed were plotting against him, or had been plotting against Philip. The first to die was Alexander's cousin Amyntas IV, and he did have some claim to the throne. You see, Amyntas's father was Philip's older brother, Perdiccas III, who had been king right before Philip. When Perdiccas had been killed in battle, Amyntas had actually been declared as the next king. Philip acted as regent for his nephew and was supposed to hand the throne back over to Amyntas when he came of age. But he didn't. Philip kept the throne for himself, and if anyone protested, they probably didn't live long enough to protest for too long. 
Philip had actually given one of his daughters, a woman named Canine, who will come up later, to Amintis in marriage. But even though Amintis showed no real interest in challenging Alexander to the throne, Alexander had him eliminated anyway, making his half-sister a widow. He was just too viable a claimant to the throne. Then, Alexander was finally in a position to deal with Italis, that uncle of Cleopatra's that had insulted him and questioned his right to rule. When the news of Philip's death reached Italis, who was in Asia Minor with part of Philip's army, his heart must have dropped at the news that the young man he had insulted was now king. Oh no! Swiftly and far from home, Alexander had Italis murdered. Alexander claimed Italis was plotting with Athens to overthrow him, but this could very well just be propaganda used to validate the death of a man who had insulted him. But there was still the problem of Cleopatra, Italis's niece and the seventh wife of Philip. She had given birth to a daughter, Europa, not long before Philip's death. Some sources say she had borne Philip two children, possibly even a son, but only the name of one daughter survives, so it was most likely just the one girl. Although she was one of his stepmothers, Alexander associated Cleopatra with Italis, and her child was now a branch in the royal family, and one that had showed hostility to Alexander, and therefore Olympias. The sources we have on what happened next are fairly weak, but they deserve some credence. While Alexander was out crushing rebellions, trying to stabilize his new kingdom, and murdering any threats to his power, he left his mother to deal with Cleopatra and her baby. Olympias did not tolerate threats to her power, or that of her sons. She had grown up in Melosia, a place where her father had been forced to share the throne. She had suffered invasion, the fickle manner of court politics, and had learned at a young age that to stay on top in a violent world, you had to be more cunning, more ruthless than those that would see you fall. She had learned how to survive, at any cost. Olympias had Cleopatra's baby murdered. Then she made Cleopatra kill herself. The sources differ on how, and some don't mention these murders at all, so it's speculative, but it very well could have happened. The second-century geographer Pausanias claims she had both the mother and the child dragged over a fire until they burned to death. The writer Justin claims Olympias murdered the baby in its mother's arms and then forced Cleopatra to hang herself. If the crime happened, it did not happen publicly. Hanging was the preferred method of suicide for noble Greek women, so allowing Cleopatra to hang herself versus having her stabbed or poisoned would have been seen as horrible as it is, more respectful. And the forced suicide of Cleopatra does deserve some attention because it's something Olympias will do again in the future to another victim. According to that account, which I'll get into in another episode, Olympias sent the woman a dagger, a vial of poison, and a rope. That message would have been clear. She was sending a death sentence, but offering the woman a choice on how she wanted to die. Olympias and Alexander cleared a path lined with the bodies of those they viewed as threats. 
The next two years were spent cleaning up the mess Philip's death had heralded, and both Alexander and Olympias moved quickly to consolidate their power. Alexander made use of the Macedonian army Philip had made into a war machine. He asserted authority over the Greek city-states that Philip had conquered into accepting his rule. After campaigns in the Balkans and Thrace, Alexander moved against Thebes, a major city-state that had, for the second time since Alexander had taken up arms, risen up in rebellion. He conquered it, slaughtered 6,000 of its citizens and soldiers, captured and enslaved upwards of 30,000 more, and had it destroyed. No doubt, many mothers and their children had died then, or been sold into slavery. But it's the fact Olympias killed one mother and one child that shocked a historic audience. And I'm not justifying the fact that she had them murdered, it's obviously terrible. But we can see the inconsistency in coverage here. Confident that Greece was now under his heel, Alexander was ready to launch a campaign against the Persian Empire, the same campaign his father had planned two years earlier. Only now, Alexander would lead the Macedonians headfirst into the superpower that was Persia. It's hard to know what Olympias would have thought as her son left to conquer and burn and take and rule. He was young, he was impetuous and confident at the blood of Achilles his mother had told him was running through his veins. She would stay behind and, in her mind, be the authority in Macedonia, guarding her son's kingdom while he was away, much to the annoyance of Antipater, Alexander's general, who also wanted that role. We'll see how that mess plays out in the next episode. As Alexander rode out at the head of his army and Olympias watched the figure of the man he had become grow smaller and smaller on the horizon, heading into the east, into the unknown, she very well may have felt a swelling pride mingling with apprehension for his safety as he rode out, chasing glory for the both of them. It was the last time she would ever see her son alive. That is where we're going to leave off part two of the Olympias series. I know this episode was a little Philip and Alexander heavy, but the events that unfolded had to be told to fully portray the story of Olympias. In two weeks' time, we will see what happens next in the life of one of history's most evocative women. In the meantime, if you want to get a hold of me, you can do that at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at the handle at cashhistory. If you'd like to help support the show and help me keep up with hosting fees, books, and music licenses, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. And if you're already a patron, may Dionysus bless you with the fruit of a thousand ages, while Zeus banishes all your hardships with the fire of all the lightning forged in the clouds of Olympus. And even if you're not a patron, thank you for listening today and choosing this show out of the hundreds of thousands of others you could have chosen from. I genuinely appreciate that you've listened and given a part of your day to the story of Olympias. And until we meet again, dear wandering ancient heroes of time and legend, go make some history.